Welcome to the 5X Growth Podcast, where your host, Carl, brings you the best insights and takeaways from the books I read on startups, entrepreneurship, marketing, and sales. Get ready to level up and accelerate your personal and professional growth with every episode. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Today we're going to continue our book, uh, Why Startups Fail. This is chapter 2, Catch 22. As I explained in the previous chapter, an entrepreneur is someone who pursues a novel opportunity while lacking resources. For early stage startups, defined here as those that are less than 3 years old, this dynamic creates a Catch 22 situation. That is, a logical impasse equivalent to you can get a job without experience and you can get experience without a job. From the outset, a founder is short on time, if not all, of the resources necessary to exploit a novel opportunity. These may include co-founders, team members with certain specialized skills, outside investors and strategic partners who can provide technology or distribution. To mobilize the missing resources, the entrepreneur must convince multiple parties that committing to the new venture with all its attended risks will deliver an attractive payoff. Hence, the catch-22, a founder cannot pursue a novel opportunity in any meaningful way without resources and she can't attract resources until she's actually pursued the opportunity at least to the point where she can demonstrate to resource owners that the risks are reasonable to break through this impasse early stage entrepreneurs can employ one or more of four tactics to reduce resource requirements while respectively resolving, shifting, deferring, or downplaying downplaying opportunity-related risks. However, as I'll explain here and in the chapters that follow, every one of these tactics contains some potentially destructive downsides. Well, let's get to talking about the tactics, right? The first tactic is lean experiments, resolving risks. So using minimal viable products that minimize resource commitments, founders can validate their assumptions about an opportunity and resolve uncertainty about the new venture's viability. As we'll soon see with closing retailer Quincy, Positive results for MVP tests can be persuasive when employees or investors are deciding whether to commit to a new venture. Now let's talk about the hazards. In their zeal to get started, early stage entrepreneurs are vulnerable to false starts. That is, to bypassing crucial early research that informs their understanding of customer needs and whether their envisioned solution will meet them. 
Now let's talk about the tactic number two. It's called partnering. And this is shifting risk when you're partnering. So entrepreneurs may be able to rent resources from a strategic partner. For example, access to technology or distribution networks. The partner is often an established corporation that, by virtue of its greater scale and deeper pockets, is better able to bear risk than the startup. Than the startup. So this is about. We're basically done with the tactic two. I think that's uh, self-explanatory. And now let's move on to the tactic three. It's called staging, and this is deferring risk. So venture capital backs startups raise capital in stages, often taking in just enough funding in each round to meet their next set of major milestones, such as completing product development or launching the product. This approach defers risks because if the startup fails to meet a key milestone, investors can pull the plug and avoid future outlays. Now let's talk about tactic four. It's called storytelling. And basically, that's when you downplay the risks. By propagating a reality distortion field, that is, mesmerizing potential employees, investors, and strategic partners, so they focus on a startup's world-changing potential rather than on its real-world risks. Overconfident and charismatic founders in particular are able to persuade people to commit resources under terms favorable to their new venture. But how can an, an, an aspiring entrepreneur know whether she has actually identified an attractive opportunity and determine what types of resources are required to successfully capitalize upon it. So the diamond and square framework provides the answers. The framework's diamond breaks down the startup's opportunity, that is, the horse, into four constituent parts. Its customer value proposition, technology and operations, marketing, and profit formula. The diamond is framed by a square whose corners denote the ven ven venture's key resource providers. Its founders, uh, that is the jockeys, other team members, outside investors, and strategic partners. The diamond and square framework. Let's talk about the customer value proposition in depth. Of the four opportunity elements, an early stage startup's customer value proposition is without question the most important. To survive, a new venture absolutely must offer a sustainability uh, differentiated solution for strong, unmet customer needs. This point bears repeating. Needs must be strong. Likewise, differentiation is crucial. If the venture's offering is not superior in meaningful ways to existing solutions, again, no one will buy it. 
Finally, sustaining the differentiation is important. Without barriers to imitation, the venture is vulnerable to copycats. Such barriers, called modes by some entrepreneurs, come in two types. First is proprietary assets and business model attributes. So proprietary assets are either difficult to duplicate or are in scarce supply. Examples include trusted brand names, patents, and great location for a retail store and preemptive access to a key raw material, like Beyond Burgers. Long-term contract locking up a large percentage of the world's supply of pea protein. Business model attributes are those that can confer an advantage in attacking and retaining customers, like high customer switching costs and strong network effects. Switching costs aren't just financial expenditures. They can also include inconveniences and risks incurred when a customer changes from one vendor to another. Consider, for example, the costs and risks when switching dog walkers. A family must trust the new walker with keys to their residence, must brief the new walker on their pet's patterns and preferences, and run the risk that their dog may not take to this new human in its life. Switching costs can be a double-edged sword. With With network effects, a product becomes more vulnerable to any given user as it adds more users. Opening dating Online dating is a prime example, a site that offers access to a greater number of potential romantic partners has more appeal. Due to strong network effects in online dating, startups like Triangulate struggle at the outset to attract users. And this is another catch-22 situation, because they need users in order to get users. An early-stage startup has three important choices to make regarding its customer value proposition. Choices that will have a big impact on its odds for success. Target a single customer segment, you might ask? Well, an alternative to targeting multiple segments with a single product is creating separate versions of the product each with different features and branding. This solution takes care of positioning problems but boosts costs and complexity. Many startups target a single segment upon launch because it speeds their time to market and by catering to a single segment's needs allows them to capture a bigger share of a smaller market. It's easy to defend a stronghold like that and to expand from it. After launching, the startup can then try to modify its product and or marketing approach in an effort to reach additional customer segments. And that's basically what Amazon did. They started to sell books at first, but then expanded to different segments. 
Second, you need to ask yourself how much innovation. When designing their first product, founders might, must decide how much to innovate. Some entrepreneurs believe that more innovation is always better. But as we'll, as we'll see, that mindset can get them in trouble. Entrepreneur innovation comes in three flavors. First is new business model. Second, new technologies. And third, combining existing technologies in new ways. Some form of innovation require changes in customer behavior. Such changes may incur switching costs, like consumer must learn how to use a new type of product and perhaps bear the risk that an unproven solution won't deliver on its promise. So when innovation requires a change in behavior, the value delivered to customers must outweigh any switching costs they'll incur. Often applying new innovative technology requires no change at all to customer behavior. Customers can continue to exactly do what they've been doing while enjoying lower cost, higher speed, or better reliability. Then you need to ask yourself, is this a low or high touch solution? Some, some startups offer a one-size-fits-all solution with bare-bones service. Others deliver a more customized product with concierge-style service. Let's label these approaches low-touch and high-touch, respectively. Care.com is a low-touch service. It provides access to an enormous list of providers but has parents do the work of filtering their search results, reviewing profiles, and then contacting and interviewing candidates. Time-consuming and anxiety-inducing tasks. Poppy, a failed startup will encounter in later chop chapters, offers a high-touch on-demand solution for parents with ad hoc childcare requirements. No need for the parents to screen the provider's qualification. For an entrepreneur, deciding whether to develop a low or high-touch solution involves weighting a number of trade-offs because low-touch solutions are standardized. They look the same for every customer. Then they can be scaled up more readily. Standardization also facilitates automation, so the low-touch product can be delivered at a lower cost. That's imperative because a low-touch solution by its nature lacks differentiation and therefore cannot command a big price premium. By contrast, a high-touch solution can charge a price premium because customers are understandably willing to pay more for first a solution that's customized to their specific needs and or second a solution that provides superior service that greater revenue is necessary to cover the extra costs incurred in delivering a high-touch solution however a startups that can offer a high-touch solution sometimes 
confront operational challenges that extra revenue cannot solve and that preclude rapid scaling and that preclude rapid scaling now let's talk about technology and operations to survive a startup must be able to fulfill its value promise which entails actually inventing the product building it physically delivering it and servicing it after it's been sold poor execution of any of these tasks can kill a venture beyond the imperative for solid uh, beyond the imperative for solid execution most startups com confront only one do or die decision about their technology and operations and that is whether to outsource key activities or undertake them internally. Marketing. Clearly, a new venture must have must make potential customers aware of what it's offering. On this front, the crucial decision for early stage startups is how much to spend on marketing. It's another Goldilocks dilemma. Too little or too much can each have fatal consequences. Consider two extremes. Build it and they will come. So this approach assumes that a great product will sell, will sell itself, especially that word of mouth referrals will spread virally and that press mentions will drive early customer acquisition. There are two advantages with this approach. First, minimizing its spending on marketing allows a startup to conserve scarce cash. Also, customers are typically more loyal when they've been acquired organically. That is when they've sought out a product rather than being drawn to it through advertising. But what if you build it and no one comes? Many entrepreneurs who build great products simply don't have a good distribution strategy even worse is when they insist they don't that they don't need one or call no distribution strategy a viral marketing strategy big bang launch at the height of the late 1990s dot com boom startups often launch their products with massive advertising and public relations campaigns. That approach is less fashionable today. A big splashy launch, if it works, can propel a startup to a dominant position in a new market. But it's risky for a venture to invest aggressively in marketing before it has product market fit. That is before its product meets market needs and can be built and sold at a profit, at least in the long term. A research effort that surveyed the management practices of early-stage startups concluded that premature scaling of marketing and product development efforts is a widespread cause of startup failure. Now let's talk about profit formula. A venture's profit formula is its plan for making money. How much revenue will it earn and what cost will it incur? In the profit formula, revenue and cost are each broken down into component parts. Revenue depends on the product's price and the number of units sold. 
costs come in several types, each with different drivers. For example, variable costs increase in direct proportion to the number of units sold. A marketing cost may vary with the number of new customer acquired, new customers acquired. Overhead expenses like executive salaries or office rent for the headquarters staff are fixed, at least over the short term. A startup's long-term economic viability hinges on its performance with respect to many different metrics. But the following three are more cr critical than others. First is unit economics. When investors ask about a startup's unit economics, they want to know how much profit the company will, will earn per unit sold. They, the relevant unit will differ defer by business. Note that profit in this context is defined as gross, gross profit, that is revenue per unit minus all variable costs directly incurred in producing and delivering the unit. For example, the cost to manufacture a single unit, warehouse labor for packaging a unit, the cost of shipping each unit, fees paid to credit card companies on each unit and electron. Not factored into the equation are marketing costs, allocations for overhead expenses, interest payments on debt or income taxes. Deduction of these items would yield net profit. Essentially, analysis of a startup's unit economics asks how much cash the firm earns or loses from a typical transaction. For a healthy business, cash earned per transaction multiplied by the number of transactions will yield sufficient total cash flow to cover marketing costs and overhead expenses, investments that must be made to support further growth, say in inventory or factory equipment, and then interest payments on any debt, and then taxes and adequate profit for equity investors. That is enough to encourage them to provide more capital if needed. Since every business is different, businesses that lose, lose money on every transaction is probably in trouble unless its managers have a clear plan for reversing the losses. LTV CAC ratio, a customer's lifetime value LTV equals the discounted present value of the gross profit earned over the life of a typical customer's relationship with the venture. So discounted present value accounts for the fact that a dollar received in the future isn't as valuable as a dollar received today because you can put today's dollars dollar in the bank and earn some interest until the future dollar arrives. Essentially, LTV deducts these foregone interest payments from the future dollars earned. And customer acquisition cost, CAC, reflects the average marketing costs 
incurred in acquiring a typical customer. An LTV slash CAC ratio below implies that a customer is worth less than it took it cost to bring her on board. If a startup's LTV slash CAC ratio remains below one for an extended period, it's probably doomed because it won't earn enough gross profit to cover fixed overhead costs and earn a net profit. For this reason, many startups target an LTV CAC ratio greater than 3. Break-even point. The LTV CAC ratio is, is a key performance measure, but it's important to remember that cash flow from customers is earned over time, whereas the cost of acquiring customers is incurred upfront. That implies that a startup with a healthy LTV CAC ratio that is aggressively expanding its customer base could be burning through its capital reserves rapidly, meaning it may be at risk of violating the cardinal rule of entrepreneurship. Don't run out of cash. Don't run out of cash. A startup has to reach its cash flow break-even point. That occurs when the venture sales volume generates enough gross profit to cover all of its tax payments, marketing expenses, fixed costs, and new investments. My survey of early-stage founders shows that mastery of these profit formula metrics can improve a venture's odds for success. Founders-slash-CEOs leading struggling startups were much less confident than their more successful counterparts in their estimate of unit economics, LTV-CAC ratio, and, and six-month cash flow projections. Resource Resource elements The four elements described above, the diamond in the diamond and square framework collectively specify the opportunity uh, what the venture will offer and to whom its plan for technology and operations its market marketing approach and how the venture will make money to capture this opportunity the venture will need the right resources in the right amounts the square in the diamond and square framework specifies the four types of resources of resource providers whose contributions are important for success in most startups they include the ventures founders other team members outside investors and strategic partners who may provide key technology um, Yeah, key technologies, operation capabilities, or access to distribution channels. These four square elements should complement one another so that an abundance of one resource can compensate for shortfalls of another. For example, 
A founder who lacks industry experience can be supported by senior team members or by investors who have such experience. So let's move on. Let's move on to talk about founders. As I explained in the last chapter, founders fit can have a decisive impact on venture outcomes. Likewise, co-founder conflict can tear up a startup apart. Some co-founders jointly conceive a venture concept and work together right from the start. Many other startups have one founder who was the sole idea person. She alone had the original insight to pursue the opportunity. This founder often recruits others to the founding team. There comes a time when both founders and investors should ask. Given the nature of ventures opportunity and the capabilities of its original founders, should they recruit additional co-founders and or like jettison any current co-founder? When considering these decisions, uh, three dimensions are especially important. So, three dimensions are especially important. First one is industry experience. Second one is functional experience. And the third one, temperament. So let's break each of them down. Industry experience. Prior industry experience is more important in some settings than others. But prior industry experience is not always a decisive factor. In the next chapter, I'll explore settings that make industry expertise important. Second, functional expertise. Founding teams should also have the right mix of business acumen and technical skills relevant to the opportunities the startup is pursuing. Shorthand often used for this kind of team is called hacker and hustler, referring to a talented engineer, so it's a hacker, and to someone with business know-how, especially the ability to sell. It's a hustler. Of course, a founding team can compensate for any gaps by hiring senior managers with relevant skills. Third one is temperament. It takes a lot of confidence to be an entrepreneur who is setting out to do something that's never been done before. It's It's well documented that when compared to members of the general public, Entrepreneurs are, on average, more confident, overconfident, uh, that is, more likely to overestimate the accuracy of their projections about uncertain outcomes. For example, conf- for example, confidence fuels resilience, which is crucial for founders as they board the entrepreneurial roller coaster. Likewise, founders who project confidence are more persuasive when they pitch their vision to prospective employee, employers and investors. But well, as we'll see again and again, too much confidence can leave an entrepreneur vulnerable to taking on too much risk, especially when her passion prevents her from grasping the grim reality of, of her situation. 
At the other extreme, a founder's lack of confidence can also doom her venture, making it difficult to attract employees and investors. So founder's level of confidence should ideally lie somewhere on the middle of, of a spectrum that has to too headstrong at one end and too tentative at the other. Either extreme can have fatal consequences. Tentative founders who may be short on self-confidence, they lack passion for their concept or underestimate the effort and stress associated with the founder role. Will throw it the, will throw in the towel much more quickly than their headstrong counterparts. Given these risks, entrepreneurs should avoid bringing on or keeping founding team members positioned too far to either extreme on the headstrong to tentative spectrum. It's also important to ask: Are co-founders' dispositions complementary? Two headstrong co-founders, for example, might repeatedly clash in dysfunctional ways, whereas a headstrong founder and tentative founder might balance each other out. So we've talked about the founders, and now let's talk about the team. If other elements in the diamond and square framework are aligned, a weak team is unlikely to deal a death blow to a venture, but if the other elements are out of whack, when a weak team can be, uh, when other elements are out of whack, then a weak team can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. One decision about team composition that early stage startups often wrestle with is whether to hire for attitude or skill. This is a delicate balance. If founders hire mostly for attitude, their team will be comprised of highly motivated, hardworking, jack-of-all-trades generalists who will shift readily between tasks and circumstances required. Hiring for cultural fit can yield similar results attracting employees who embrace a venture's mission and feel a strong affinity to their teammates and will move mountains out of, of a sense of duty to both. However, hard work alone may not get the job done if no one on the team has the skill to solve tough problems in marketing, engineering, or other functions. Hiring mostly for skill can give early-stage startups a performance boost, but attracting talented specialists isn't always easy for an unknown cash-strapped startup with questionable survival prospects. Also, founders without prior experience in a particular function will lack the right connections to help fill the recruiting pipeline. Specialists may also display a not-my-job attitude when asked to help with work outside their area of expertise. Likewise, if accustomed to working in corporations with well-established processes 
that specify how work products and information flow from one function to another, specialists may find it hard to navigate the lack of process with, within a new venture. So we've talked about the founders, team, and now let's talk about investors. In early stage startups, founders must decide when to raise money, how much to raise, and from whom. Mistakes here can have grave consequences. Furthermore, founders who lack a track record may not have many degrees of freedom when making these choices. They may struggle to raise capital and be forced to cut corners, sacrificing funder fit in order to stay afloat when to raise deciding when to seek additional capital is a balancing act an entrepreneur must predict when the venture will exhaust its current capital that moment that moment is known as a startup's fume date the point at which its gas tank is empty and the enterprise is running on fumes an entrepreneur must then estimate how long it will take to raise money, which hinges on two factors. First, investors will move faster if the startup has demonstrated strong traction through revenue growth, customer engagement, and or the achievement of key milestones. Like product completion, beta test commencement, etc., all of which can significantly boost the venture's validation. Second, the entrepreneur must forecast investor sentiment. Investors move in herds, and as a result, venture capital is prone to boom-bust cycles. When a sector is hot, VCs scramble to add startups from that sector to their portfolio. But sentiment can turn sore quickly. And when it does, investors may, may shun even healthy startups. If a founder raises money too early before key milestones are met, investors will insist on a lower price for equity shares because they must bear more risk than the startup will stumble. Than the startup will stumble. A lower valuation translates into more dilution of the founder's equity stake. So, see why. Assume that a founder raising her startup's first outside capital targets a 2 million seed round. If investors give the startup a post-money valuation of 8 million, which equals pre-money valuation plus new equity, respectively 6 million and 2 million in this example, then after raising capital, investors will own 25% of the equity, uh, i.e. the 2 million they invested divided by the 8 million post-money valuation for the startup's equity. And the founder will own 75%. By contrast, if the startup manages to raise 2 million with only a 4 million post post-money valuation. The founder will own just 50% of the equity after the financing. So how much to raise? 
the trade-offs involved in deciding the amount of capital to raise mirror those that pertain to the timing of fundraising. Founders making these decisions can find themselves in a race between greed and fear. The greed. Founders will suffer less dilution of their equity stake if they delay fundraising until they've met more milestones and or raise the absolute minimum amount of capital needed to meet the next set of milestones. The fear. If they delay fundraising or raise too little, they lack a capital buffer to carry them through any setback. For example, if they need to pivot to a new opportunity or get surprised by rivals, without a buffer, the startup may be forced to raise what's called a bridge round under duress. And this is likely to be a down round, that is a reduction in share price. Down rounds can accelerate a startup's demise because they signal a sinking ship, making it challenging to attract new employees. Similarly, any current employees whose stock options are underwater will be more inclined to leave. Given these trade-offs, some entrepreneurs subscribe to the ductum raise as much capital as you can whenever you can. Indeed, having access to both loads of capital can be a competitive weapon if a startup has to confront aggressive rivals. But raising a big round can damage a startup too if it al allows management to spend in profligate ways. <clears throat> too much money can become infected with a culture of complacency, laziness, and arrogance. Resulting dysfunctions can include overhiring with a commensurate slowdown in decision-making as too many managers get involved. And second, schedule slippage. And employees say, what's the urgency? We have all this cash. In the same vein, raising money from investors who are willing to pay an enormous price for their shares results in less dilution of an entrepreneur's equity stake. But this can backfire. The price may be so high that it could be difficult to make enough progress to justify an even higher price for the next funding round. The result, a subsequent down round that the negative consequences described above. And the negative consequences described above. And now you need to ask yourself, from whom? Investors can add tremendous value to early stage startups by providing good advice on strategic challenges by steering job candidates to the firm, by coaching founders on their management and leadership style, and by providing introductions to help management raise their new round of capital. As successful Shark Tank contestant, contestants know, raising capital from elite investors signals that a startup has great prospects. So 
recruiting and fundraising benefits may accrue even if the investors doesn't take any direct action on the startup's behalf. By contrast, flawed funder fit can wreak havoc on a startup in two ways. The first is the misalignment of risk-reward trade-offs. A second problem with the funder fit relates to an investor's ability and willingness to provide additional capital to a struggling startup that is running low on cash. For these reasons, early-stage founders, especially those who are accident-prone, should seek investors that have a track record of providing bridge funding and have enough capital in their current fund to do so. So we've talked about the founders, we've talked about the team, we've finished talking about the investors, and now let's talk about partners. As with decisions about team members, bad choices about partnerships rarely are primary cause of a startup's demise, but they are more likely to boost the odds of failure by creating yet one more serious problem for management to deal with. At a certain point, management cannot bail water fast enough and the ship sinks. As noted above, in the discussions of outsourcing, partnering can provide fast access to resources without a fixed upfront investment. However, consistent with Andresen's concerns, it can be tough for an unknown startup with a dubious chances of survival to sign an established company as a partner. If that partner does come on board, the startup might still have trouble capturing its attention and keeping its interests aligned with those of the venture. Partnership can misfire for several reasons, and the larger the power imbalance between the, some big companies are just kicking the tires to learn about a startup's technology and strategy, and maybe steal some ideas. For others who might be genuinely interested the partnership is nevertheless low on the big company's priority list. Also, big company dealmakers often deliberate drag out negotiations to build bargaining advantage. They know that the startup is burning cash in the meantime and might make concessions out of desperation. Creating something from nothing is a daring act, one that requires not only vision and confidence, but also countless difficult decisions. As explained above, many of the decisions confronting the founders of an early-stage startup can have a decisive impact on the new venture's odds of success. The Diamond and Square framework helps organize those decisions and provides a tool for diagnosing what went wrong. That's all for today's episode of the 5x Growth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave us a rating and a review. For show notes and more, visit our website at 5xgrowth.com. 
Until next time, stay focused and keep growing.